Well, if you've been um, tracking with us a little bit, we've been reading through the Gospel of Luke for a while now, and this week we're in Luke 17. And if you're finding yourself, as Steve just prayed, a little bit beat up, broken, feeling like, man, uh, life is hard, and uh, you know, I need something new and fresh, and like, well, welcome. What a great place to be then here today uh, with a bunch of others who might be feeling the same way. So just for fun today, could we talk about scandal? <laughs> so when I say that word, um, that will bring up automatic images to your mind of what a scandal is. And today, we want to read from Luke chapter 17, verses 1 to 19, and look at uh, some of the scandalous things that Jesus talks about, and actually a lived-out example of how that plays out in everyday life. So I'm gonna read from Luke 17, verses one to 19 for you this morning. You can follow along. Um, We provide notes just as you're coming in. If you'd like to take notes, um, jot a few things down, there's some notes out there that you can grab. You can pull them down online as well from newlifecollingwood.com. Listen to these almost seems like um, disconnected pieces that Luke is just, it, all, it feels like he's maybe throwing them in here because he's not sure where else to put these. He's running out of space. He's getting near the end of his story. And it almost has a sense of, well, I'll just wedge these in here as we get to Jerusalem and the crucifixion. But I think there's a thread in this. And some of it's a little bit scandalous. So one day, Jesus said to his disciples, there will always be temptations to sin. But what sorrow awaits the person who does the tempting? It would be better to be thrown into the sea with a millstone hung around your neck than to cause one of these little ones to fall into sin. So watch yourselves. If another believer sins, rebuke that person. If there's repentance, forgive. Even if that person wrongs you seven times a day and each time turns again and asks forgiveness, you must forgive. Hearing this, the apostles said to the Lord, "Uh, you got to show us how to increase our faith. And the Lord answered, well, if you've got faith as small as a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and thrown into the sea, and it would obey you. When a servant comes in from plowing or taking care of the sheep, does his master say to him, come on in and eat with me? No, he says, get my meal together, put your apron on, serve me, then you can eat. And does the master thank the servant for doing what he was told to do? Of course not. In the same way, when you obey me, you should say, we are unworthy servants. We have simply done our duty. And as Jesus continued toward Jerusalem, he reached the border between Galilee and Samaria. And as he entered a village there, 10 lepers stood at a distance crying out, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And he looked at them and he said, go show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed of their leprosy. And one of them, when he saw that he was healed, came back to Jesus shouting, Praise God! And he fell to the ground at Jesus' feet, thanking him for what he had done. And this man was a Samaritan. 
Jesus asked, didn't I heal ten? Where are the other nine? Has no one returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? And Jesus said to the man, stand up and go. Your faith has healed you. very first thing that you might notice as you read this passage is that Jesus is talking to his disciples. Remember, I'm going to remind you of this regularly, from Luke chapter 9 to Luke chapter 19. Luke 1 to 9, Luke has Jesus Galilee. And then from Luke 9 to 19, Luke has Jesus traveling towards Jerusalem. And we're in chapter 17, and he's just starting to leave Galilee. But the whole intent of this is Galilee to Jerusalem. And from chapter 15 to about the end of chapter 18, there's numbers of groups of people that Jesus is having some conversation with. He's talking to the Pharisees sometimes, who are a group of religious leaders that I think Jesus actually has a lot of sympathy for them because they are so keen on experiencing the kingdom of God. And yet in all of their knowledge, in some respects, they're so far from being able to do the very thing that they long for. And Jesus is trying to help them. But he has conversations with them. He has conversations with people who are sometimes referred to as the crowd or the sinful people who are out there. And sometimes he's talking to his disciples. And maybe what is helpful... See, when we read this, we think Jesus has gone off, he's with his disciples, and he's talking to them. But often when you look at the whole story, Jesus is talking to one group, but the other groups are there too. They're within earshot. And so as he's teaching one group, his words are also for the others. And in these first few verses in Luke 17, Jesus is saying, watch out. There's always going to be, this translation here says temptations to sin, but that word can be translated scandals. There are always opportunities for scandal. Some translations might say for people to stumble, but the word is actually scandal, and the verb form of that is scandalized. So if I reread this, Jesus is saying to his disciples, but remember the Pharisees and others are listening in. There will always be scandals, but what sorrow awaits the person who does the scandalizing? It would be better be thrown into the sea with a millstone hung around your neck than to cause one of these little ones to be scandalized or for them to fall into the scandal themselves. And you're kind of left wondering, what's, who are the little ones? Maybe the little ones are like the story that he just told about Lazarus and the rich man. The little ones are people like Lazarus who are really just, he's lying at the gate. He's poor and he's hoping for crumbs and the dogs are looking at him. Maybe it's the lepers that we just read about. Maybe it's the crooked uh, servant that we read about in Luke 16 last week. But here's Jesus saying, be careful that you don't cause little ones to join the scandal, to be scandalized. And I wonder what he's talking about. And there are different ways that you could read this and understand this, but I think in the awareness that these 10 chapters from Luke 9 to 19, there's this underlying theme of Jesus going to his death and resurrection. Death and resurrection are playing out chapter after chapter after chapter. 
And this idea that the way of the cross is so often scandalous to our sensibilities. Let me give you a couple examples of what I'm talking about. The Apostle Paul, an early follower of Jesus and an early leader in the church, he wrote a lot of letters to the churches that he started. And in one letter to a group of people called the Corinthians, he wrote them two letters, so we have 1 Corinthians and we have 2 Corinthians. They're both Paul's letters. In the very first chapter in this first letter, Paul says this to them in verse 23. When we preach that Christ was crucified, the Jews are scandalized or offended. And the Gentiles say it's all nonsense. So that's to the Corinthians. Paul's writing to a group of people in another part of modern-day Turkey, which back then was called Galatia. It was a province of Rome. And there were people there who were devoutly Jewish, but they had come to faith in Jesus, and they were wrestling with the legalism of who's allowed to be part of the family. Just certain types of people, or is it open to everybody? And so Paul's writing to them, and he says this to them, because there's some rumors about what he's preaching about and that he's not preaching the right stuff. And he said this, if I were no longer preaching salvation through the cross of Christ, no one would be offended or no one would be scandalized. And there's two examples here of Paul writing about the scandal of the cross. And the scandal of the cross is how much it pushes against the ways of this world against our sensibilities about what is right and what is proper, the way to win, the way to get ahead, the way for success, and the way of the kingdom is so often contrary to that. And so Paul says to his disciples, in this verse here on the screen, watch yourselves, be careful. Because part of the temptation, I think for the disciples as they're with Jesus, so disciples are the people who are following Jesus, and they're juxtaposed with the Pharisees, with the crowd or the sinful people, and here's Jesus saying to those people who are, who are really attracted to him and following him, be careful that you don't think that suddenly because you're with me, you are somehow more valuable than them, or you are somehow more worthy than them. Be careful. And don't cause people who are less than, the last, the least, the lost, the lonely, the afraid, don't make them think that they have to be more than in order to become acceptable, in order to become respectable, in order to become worthy. Because when you do that, that's causing them to enter into the scandal. So be careful and watch yourselves. And then he gives them... A lovely example of how scandalous the way of Jesus is. So, it's, so it feels like Luke's taking a little story here, a little story here, a little story here. These are all the scraps and leftovers that he's trying to fit in before he tells us about the crucifixion. And we're tempted to think he's just slapping them in, but there's methodology here. And so I think what Luke is doing for us is he's saying, as Jesus gives us this, he's now saying, let me give you an example the way of forgiveness. Forgiveness is a wonderful thing until you have to give it. And he says to his disciples, and of course the others who are there listening, if someone sins, rebuke them. If there's repentance, that just means if they're willing to turn around and turn back and seek um, reconciliation. If they sin um, and there's repentance, forgive. Even if... That person wrongs you seven times a day. 
and each time turns again and asks forgiveness, you must forgive. So in Matthew's gospel, the, what he wrote um, in, in Mark, these good news stories that they gave, they also give this teaching. And some of them is, you know, um, Peter saying, how many times do we need to forgive? Seven times. And Jesus says, no, not seven times, but 70 times, seven times. In other words, just continue to forgive. But in this instant, Luke is saying, in the mouth of Jesus, seven times a day, Every day, every day, every day, the way of forgiveness, the way of forgiveness, the way of forgiveness. And back then, and I think even today, we're reading this and saying, seriously, somebody actually like just gets in my face seven times a day and I'm just supposed to keep forgiving? Because at some point we're going to say, they're not really repenting. And Jesus is saying, this is the, the power of forgiveness. And it happens over and over again. If you remember in Luke 9, just before he goes off to Jerusalem, Jesus says, when Peter says, we think that you're the Messiah, we're beginning to understand who you are. And Jesus says, now let me tell you about my way. I'm going to my death and resurrection. And unless you're willing to die to yourself and embrace your own death and live in new life, you cannot be my disciple. And I'm inviting you to do that every single day. And here's a hint of that in forgiving every day. So the apostles, I think, are, and this is interesting, uh, in verse 5 here, Luke mentions the apostles. They haven't been mentioned since Luke chapter 9. The apostles are that core group of, of 12 that are with Jesus and following. And so the 12 are saying to Jesus, uh, really? You got to show us how to increase our faith because there's no way we can do this. Lord, show us how to increase our faith. And then we get the story of faith as small as a mustard seed and telling the mountain to go into the sea or the mulberry tree to go into the sea. And we hear it and we think, okay, all I need to do is have more faith. And if I just have more faith, then things are going to go my way. God's going to be happy. And these verses get used for all kinds of things for how to get ahead in life financially, how to be healed. And we read these and we think, I just need to do more. And there are echoes of the scandal that Jesus was just talking about in those first few verses. So this translation, to have faith as small as a mustard seed, the good news is this. This word that we use for faith can also mean faithfulness. And so if you were to read it that way, it would be reading, Lord, show us how to be more faithful in all of this. And maybe that starts to change the way you're viewing this and to understand it. Maybe it's helpful. Maybe it isn't. It, I found it helpful for me. And also, this idea of having faith all as a mustard seed can also be understood to have faith like a mustard seed. And so I wonder if Jesus is saying to his followers, you know, if you have faith like a mustard seed, and then he gives them this crazy example. You can say to this tree, be thrown into the sea. And here's this wonderful example of hyperbole or extreme exaggeration. 
And you're like, so what's the point? What is he doing here? Remember the background theme here of death and resurrection all through these chapters. If you have faith like a mustard seed, maybe one way of understanding that is to realize that a mustard seed innately, inherently, genetically knows what it's supposed to do. It's supposed to die. And in its death comes new life. And in its new life comes a tree that in that time and age was quite a large tree in the garden that birds could rest in its branches and it would take a long time to develop and grow. And when the disciples, the apostles say, help us become more faithful, help us increase our faith, Jesus, in some ways, messes with their heads and says, well, just think like a mustard seed. Enter the way of death. And then begin to experience new life. And then he gives them an example. So when a servant comes in from doing what they're supposed to do all day, the master doesn't say to the servant, Oh, good job. Sit down. Let me serve you. Enjoy the meal. No, he says, hey, you're not finished yet. You're not done yet. Get me my supper. And then when I'm done, you can eat. And if the servant does all that, the servant doesn't then come to the master and say, okay, now I'm waiting for the thank you. No. And in the same way, when you've done everything you should, you should simply say, we're unworthy servants. We've only done what we're supposed to do. And you read this, and, and, and again, there's an impulse in us, I think, to kind of go like, oh, oh, it's about obedience. We just need to get better at doing the things that God told us to do. And if we would just do the things that we're supposed to do, then, then somehow we're, we've done everything that we're supposed to do. And God will be more impressed with us and more happy with us. And we've earned our way into the kingdom. And I'm, I'm not speaking against growing in our faith and the propensity we have in Jesus, the potential we have in Jesus to grow and develop into the things that are beautiful and wholesome and lovely. But if our understanding is the more that I become this, the more acceptable I am, compared to other people around me, then I think we've just gone back to scandal. And in some ways, you could understand what Jesus is saying in these verses as the realization that you will never be able to do enough. You're never going to be finished. And once you begin to understand that, then there's potential for amazing things to happen. I wonder how often we come into faith and then we think it's dependent upon us to live a certain way. We need to, we need to, to, to do the things that we're supposed to be doing. And the emphasis is on the way that we live. And, and in, you know, every person listening to Jesus tell this story about the master and the servant would know very clearly that if a servant went to the master and was expecting a thank you, what they're effectively doing is saying to the master, you owe me. 
And that would never happen in a culture where, where there was ownership of individuals. This is slave language. And it's possible that what Jesus is saying is you will never make God indebted to you by the way you live, as if God owes you. And once you begin to understand that, you are so free to experience death and resurrection. And the beautiful thing of this is the celebration of death over and over and over again. Bill Johnson, who on, I think it was his last Sunday maybe, talked about the prodigal son, yes? Yeah, just a couple of weeks ago. And in that story, Jesus, and many of you know the story of the prodigal son, the son who says to his dad, give me my inheritance, and then he takes the money and he blows it all on crazy living and he gets poor, all of his friends abandon him, and he says, I need to go back to dad and just say, listen, I am not even worthy to be your son, but at least let me be a servant. And so he goes home, and he, when his dad sees him in the distance, he goes running to him, throws his arms around him, hugs him, and all these things that fathers shouldn't do then. And then he says to his servants, get a robe, get some rings, dress this kid up. We need to party. Why do we need to party? And if you remember that story, they don't need to party because the son suddenly has got himself cleaned up. They need to party because the dad says this, he was dead. Now he's alive. The reason for the party is the son's death and the new life that comes out of the death when he finally realizes, when he finally realizes the craziness of grace and mercy and he dies to the old way and the party, the continual party is about his death And then Jesus, I think what Luke does is he puts in the story of the lepers. And it's like, okay, we've gone through these things. Now let me give you a, a real-life example of how this plays out. And he tells the story, a, a scandalous story. So we just end up back at scandal. And he says, Jesus is, is um, see, this is what I'm laughing at. It's like taking seven chapters, eight chapters, and Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. He's still just leaving Galilee. So geographically, Galilee's up here. Jerusalem and Judea are down here. And in between, there's this land called Samaria, half Jews. And the relationship, Jews up here, Jews down here, half Jews in the middle, and they don't play well together. So many really devout Jews, if they were coming down or going up, they would do this. Whoop. They'd go way out of their way so that they wouldn't defile themselves to, to be with these half-Jew, half-breed, despicable, no-good pig dogs, okay? And Jesus is just on the borderland between Galilee and Samaria. I love what he does here. Is he in Galilee? Is he in Samaria? He's out of town. Is it a Jewish town or is it a Samaritan town? Luke doesn't tell us. There's 10 lepers. We don't know who they are, but they're doing the right thing. They're staying at a distance and they're calling out, Jesus, have mercy on us. Have mercy on us. And I, love, I just love Jesus sometimes. I like him all the time. But... Um, but I love what he does sometimes. 
Because other times, he's very compassionate and receptive towards people. And here's 10 lepers. And, and other times, Jesus is touching the leper, putting his hand on him and saying, you know, I can, I do, you're healed. This time, he just, it's like he calls back to them. I almost see a Monty Python skit, like, go show yourself to the priest. And away they go. Where do the priests live? Jerusalem. Or if you're a Samaritan, Mount Gerizim because they thought the temple should be in their land, not down in Jerusalem. But Jesus says to them, go show yourself to the priest. That means they need to go on a journey because the priests have the authority to declare them clean. You can read all about it in the wonderful chapter of Leviticus 14. Go show yourself to the priest. Which priests? I love that Luke is so ambiguous in all of this. And they all go. And while they're going, all of them are healed. All of them are healed. But only one of them kind of goes like, oh, whoa, wait a minute. I think he had something to do with this. And he goes running back to Jesus and he falls at his feet and he praises God for the healing that he had received from Jesus. All 10 of them were healed. Only one of them in essence, experiences the salvation that the biblical writers are talking about again and again. See, these lepers were as good as dead. Here's the death language again. They were as good as dead. They were not allowed to be part of the community. They were outside. They were outcast. They were marginalized. They were effectively as good as dead as long as they were having the skin disease. And with this 10th one who comes back, well, he's doubly dead because Luke drops the bomb at the end of this story. And not only did only one of them come back, and it was a Samaritan. And, and people are like, are you kidding me? That is so crazy. You're all sitting there going like, yeah, what, whatever. Like, pick the group of people that you hate the most. And don't pretend that you don't hate people or that you don't have trouble with people groups because you do. I don't like telling you what you think, but I'm pretty sure that there are people in your life, a group of people or certain individuals, whatever it is, you don't like them. Maybe it's people who drive too slow. Maybe it's, uh, you know, whatever it is. That was a joke. Um, Luke drops the bomb and says, it's that person, the antagonist of the story, the person that you love to hate is the one that actually shows us what new life looks like. Doubly dead. Doubly dead. And so Jesus says, look at these verses. We'll put them up on the screen for you. Didn't I heal 10 people? So where are the other nine? Has no one returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? How did he give glory to God? Where were they supposed to go? Okay, here's the test. If, see if you've been listening. Where were they supposed to go? To the priest. Where do the priests live? Jerusalem. What's, where do the priests live specifically in Jerusalem? Where are the priests? At the temple. What does the temple symbolize for Jewish people? This might be harder. The very presence of God. God lives in the temple. And Luke doesn't tell us whether they're going to the Jerusalem temple or to the Mount Gerizim temple. Which one does God live in? And yet the one 
who experiences salvation, who falls down at the feet of Jesus, which is a sign of worship, Jesus says to that person, stand up and go. Your faith has healed you. If you can see it, Jesus is the new temple. And the Samaritan understands who Jesus is, that the presence of God is there in Jesus. And in embracing his death and the new life that he could only get through Jesus, he begins to understand his salvation. And Jesus says to him, stand up and go. It's a wonderful word in the original language. And it's the word that's used for raising the dead. Let me read a quote for you from uh, a man named Robert Capon, or Capon. He was an Anglican priest. He's deceased now. He wrote this. Jesus came to raise the dead. He did not come to reward the rewardable or improve the improvable or correct the correctable. He came simply to be the resurrection and the life of those who will take their stand on a death he can use instead of on a life he cannot. And when we embrace death and resurrection in and through Jesus, we are free to stop trying and start being in Christ. And the temptation that we bring when you're looking at all these stories about doing enough and being the obedient servant and all that is we, we lean into the life that Jesus has given us. And then we try to pretend that the old life that we might have had doesn't exist anymore. And we do this in the church really well. We want to be, you know, in, in hints of last week, respectable and worthy and acceptable. And so by doing that, we try to pretend that what our old life was didn't happen. And the beauty of the kingdom, the beauty of the Jesus way, the scandal of the Jesus way is actually to say, this was my old life, and I'm dead to it. And now I've got this new life in Jesus. And when we embrace that death and resurrection, it's just incredibly freeing. That it's no longer about, you know, trying harder, being more. Even though Jesus increases our potential and the beautiful things that he wants to see in us. But the emphasis is on him. He's the focal point. He's the temple. He's the focal point of that story. He's the focal point of all of this. And I just wonder how much um, either people who are seeking out what it means to follow Jesus or those who've been following Jesus a long time, there's a daily routine of understanding and accepting the partying way of celebrating death when we follow Jesus and seeing everything about life in who he is and how that works out in us as we die to ourselves and just live into that life that he gives. And 
think the way Jesus points out here, it's just scandal because it goes against everything that we think to be sensible and proper and appropriate in our world today. And yet, there's the invitation. And so may today be a day where Jesus is saying to you, because maybe there's a penny drop moment, stand up and go. Stop trying to hide from the life you can't figure out. And just let it die. And lean into the new life in Jesus that you can't even understand. But you've got enough faith to just start walking with him and join the party. And for heaven's sake, stop worrying about someone's going to find out about your old life. Welcome to the family of the dead who are living new in Jesus. Amen. I'd love to pray for you. I think sometimes, Lord, we don't know what to do with with the way of Jesus. Because we're spending our lives trying to figure out what it means to stay dead. And I'm just so grateful that over and over again, um, we're able to see uh, the biblical writers, we're able to see your words, your actions, celebrating this way of death. And it seems so metaphorical and so um, theoretical. Uh, and yet you give us these examples of things like forgiveness, humility, gratitude, obedience, as these things that come into, out of this new life. And so whatever understanding we have, May you, through your Holy Spirit, just work that into our hearts and our minds. And as a family, continue to knit us together. I don't know, into like a death shroud that, um, not that we'd be uh, dead in, in, uh, in the sense of just not caring, that we would just be dead into our continual need to try to find approval and worth and value and just understand that, Jesus, it's only in our death that we receive your life and that we do that together as individuals, but we do it together as a family and we celebrate each other for who we are now and we don't hold on to what somebody used to be. And may that kind of beautiful aroma characterize us. 
as your people. Amen.